Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The chair will put Mr. Speaker. The bill is passed. We've created a commitment to America. Those in favor say aye. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Control, a podcast where we look around the corner at the issues and priorities facing Congress. I'm one of your hosts, Annalise Keller. And I'm your other host, Brendan Buck. Hello, Annalise. Hello. We have a few programming notes and reminders just before we dive into everything that we have for today's episode. Um, Just as a reminder, you can expect an episode every Tuesday from us that the House is in session. Uh, We hope you can subscribe. We're trying to be a little bit more regular with our recordings throughout this year. Um, And then second, Control is pretty much a podcast about Congress, legislative challenges, Uh, But of course, there is a presidential election going on in the background, so uh, we will be covering that um, a little bit more with this season of control as it intersects with congressional lawmakers, um, and I'm sure we'll get into that uh, today with some of the immigration debate in particular. Uh, We're really excited to have Sahil Kapoor from NBC News joining us today. He's a senior national political reporter for NBC covering Capitol Hill. Uh, We're going to talk all things immigration with him. We're going to get into taxes, uh, which is going to be a big topic this week. And of course, uh, talk about the latest on appropriations. Yeah. And I will say, if you have anything that is uh, of interest to you and you want to hear us talk about it, we're getting a lot more of that lately. So always feel free to reach out if there are things that you would like to hear us uh, focus on on the podcast. But one thing that I've been pretty obsessed with is the appropriations situation. And we had a bit more news this past weekend. Uh, Finally, the 302Bs have been allocated um, for non-Congress speak people. That means they've finally figured out uh, how to divvy up the 12 uh, appropriations bills and how much each is going to get. I'm I'm once again sort of just struck how long this process is is taking. Um, but progress nonetheless, good that they, they, uh, were able to reach that agreement. But, you know, just as a reminder, uh, they reached this, uh, I mean, we, we, well, let me back up. We passed a CR to buy more time to figure out appropriations back in the middle of November. Uh, as we released this podcast on Tuesday, January 30th, um, we've had quite a bit of time elapse and last podcast I got, pretty heated about how long it took Schumer and Johnson to get a deal on this top line number that was so obviously going to be the top line number. Um, and now it took another three weeks to divvy up that top line number to uh, the 12 bills. So, um, you know, we've got another CR in place. The deadlines, again, are March 1st and March 8th, which uh, when they first passed that felt really comfy to a lot of people. Um, but I think we warned uh, everyone, it's going to come by really fast. And so they blew three more weeks just getting the, the 302Bs put in place. Um, and now they got four weeks to see if they can't uh, stave off a shutdown and get some agreement. There's, I think, still a lot of things up in the air. Uh, there's some other issues this week that I think are going to catch people's attention, um, but didn't want to lose sight of the fact that the time is once again ticking on a government shutdown. Uh, uh, but I guess we can look at it with a glass half full. They got an agreement on 302Bs this weekend, and onward we march. 
Yeah, it feels like this week and next week are going to be so jam-packed that it's going to be here before we know it. Uh, so hopefully they are quick to get something done. Well, <laughs> it may be jam-packed or it may be completely empty. We'll find out. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask you, Brendan, so is it typical that the speaker, the speaker is directly engaged in some of these negotiations or is it typically like the four corners will come, you know, with these with these top lines and sort of present like, like at what point are they presenting some of the top line figures to the speaker's office and other leadership? I mean, theoretically, this should be a committee led process. Now, if there are certain priorities or certain issues that the leadership has determined is like critical, um, they may get engaged or may want to remain pretty plugged in and they're going to be remaining plugged in either way. But uh, once the the top line number is set, that's what the, the committees are there for. And it sounds like this was a deal struck by the committees. I don't, I don't, you know, this is the thing. Like, I don't think that the, the division of the 12 bills is really going to be the, you know, the hold Sticking up point. Um, in terms of, if, you know, a floor problem. You know what I mean? Um, uh, it's going to be the makeup of what is in those individual bills. What are the policy provisions that may, may or may not be attached? Um, the top, the, yeah, that, I guess that's why I'm just so frustrated by the whole thing. The the division of the the amounts between the 12 should have at least been in focus not long after they passed or they agreed to the top line. So um, I'm sure leadership is is dialed into to what's going on here, but hopefully at this point we still have a functioning appropriations uh, committee, and I think we do, that can, that can resolve some of these things. Yeah, I guess I would say at a minimum it feels like the year-long CR threat that kind of felt pretty real a couple of weeks ago is feeling less real to me. It's feeling like it's still certainly in the realm of the possible, but this feels a little bit more like the mini mega bus situation. Yeah, I, I don't know that we're in any better or worse situation at this point. I mean, maybe what's good for all of this is that this issue has sort of receded to the back. I mean, look, the House was out last week, out of session last week, and everyone is all fired up about immigration and taxes, which we're going to get into. Um, but this is going to come uh, rearing its head back very soon. And um, at some point, Johnson's still going to have to figure out how he gets bills to the floor, whether that's a megabus, minibus situation. I'm sure he's still aiming to do individual appropriations bills. Um, but, you know, the fundamental challenge that we've talked about previously, that these bills are at spending levels that conservatives reject and therefore may not let even come to the floor under a normal process, um, poses a huge threat, a huge procedural obstacle um, for him. Um, I, I think there are ways around that, but uh, far from out of the woods. Yeah. Well, and I think it's right that we're going to, you know, be all, you know, be all the oxygen and is going to be sucked up by this immigration debate and tax conversation over the next couple of weeks. And I feel like it is going to be, it is kind of the good and the bad. It's, it's the, you know, spending is pushed to the back burner, but then it's going to come, come back and, and be, you know, we're going to be running out of time. Uh, but so the Senate immigration deal is 
not yet been released, uh, and I know we're going to get into a lot more of those dynamics with Sawhill uh, later on in the program. But I did think it was interesting over the weekend, um, Biden endorsed the immigration package. I mean, I'm sure he's seen most of these details, but I thought it was a little bit interesting that he went ahead and endorsed it before um, it was before the deal has been made public. Uh, and it kind of, I don't know, I, I sort of saw it as like a kiss of death because I really don't think that, um, you know, there's any way that the House is going to touch this thing. And I really feel like Biden moving so quickly to get out in front and say that he's endorsing this is just a political move so that he can say, you know, hey, look, I'm, I'm supporting this. I'm looking to do something at the border uh, and Republic, like House Republicans are, are there trying to block me. Yeah, all of this is weird. I mean, the fact that they sort of announced, quasi-announced that they have an agreement, but they're not telling you what the agreement is. And I mean, I understand, you know, they're trying to bracket this and, and you know, pre-spin it as much as possible and all that. But it's just a bizarre little theater that's going on in advance of it. I agree. I mean, the, the president... Um, coming out and endorsing it does not help your Republican situation. Um, but I also don't know what the alternative is, right? Like he can't, you know, this is a bipartisan agreement. Theoretically, he's going to have to sign it. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, I, I, it wasn't bad messaging per se, if you're trying to put pressure on Republicans, you know, he comes out and says, um, this bill gives me the authority to shut down the border. And if they, uh, send it to my desk, I will do so immediately. I mean, that, that kind of amps up the pressure. I, I just don't know that he has the credibility with the people that he's trying to convince for that to really work. And it sure doesn't seem like it's going to work. And so we're in this weird spot where we don't even know if they're going to bring this bill up at this point. Um, and I'm sure that this is what Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer are trying to figure out right now is you know, nobody has really seen this. How do you create momentum for something that by every indication has no chance in the House? And um, certainly the conservative opposition, namely Donald Trump, um, is really upping the volume. Uh, so I, I, I think it's you know, this is supposed to be the big week where they roll it out and start moving. It's not entirely clear to me that they're actually ever going to put this on the floor in the Senate. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think McConnell's point that there, you know, this used to be sort of a uniting issue to help get folks to, in particular House Republicans, to support a package that has some less popular items like Ukraine attached, like Ukraine funding attached to it. Um, and I think he kind of rightly pointed out that there were some shifting political winds uh, behind the immigration package. And I think that's what you're seeing now with um, Trump, who you know, is kind of making this, making his counter, uh, you know, his uh, opposition to the legislation known coming off the heels of the Iowa and New Hampshire uh, wins. So, you know, being the presumptive nominee, I mean, you kind of understand that House Republicans are in a position up for re-election where they, you know, are like, well, you know, you kind of, we're representing our constituents here and they're not necessarily supporting this. Yeah, I mean, a lot of attention paid to Donald Trump saying, you know, basically opposing whatever it is the deal is that I'm sure he hasn't seen. Um, I would, I would argue that Donald Trump didn't exist right now or, you know, was a, just a former political figure and stayed out of it. They would still have a very hard time 
getting yeah. this done. And I think it's more, I think Biden's endorsement of the deal is actually more interesting to me. Um, I think it sort of signals that he must, they must really be getting some polling data about what folks in the rest of the country are talking about immigration. Certainly the potential to be a huge liability, and they're trying to, I think, wrestle that away from them. Um, And look, Republicans have said a lot of dumb things about this that will only help him, right? Like, um, was it Troy Nels from uh, Texas who said, you know, I don't want to do anything that's going to help Joe Biden in an election year, like saying that out loud, like um, pretty, pretty striking. Um, but yeah, would I would not mean, recommend. Yeah. Good, good comms. Um, I, I mean, I guess there was a, a way that he could have sort of just leaned back and let Congress sort of, um, you know, kind of do what it's going to do and, and not put his uh, fingerprints too much on it. But I mean, his DHS secretary is the one in the room negotiating it. So, I mean, I don't know who anybody is fooling there. Um, but I guess you can make an argument that he was maybe leaning in too heavy, um, and, and could, could, could tank it. Um, and on their part, this is pure, you know, ends up just becoming a political play to put that pressure on and to be able to do the, I told you so I, I was for it and they wouldn't do anything. Um, either way, it's messy either way. Um, it's a, such a weird spot for the leaders to be in to figure out whether they can even pass this. And obviously we know what's going to happen in the house. It makes it a much harder vote. For, you know, Schumer obviously controls the, the floor, not McConnell. But if you're a, if you're McConnell and you have to try to convince your folks to take what is now clearly a tough vote when you know it's not going to pass in the house, um, that's a much harder whipping job at this point. Um, why, why stick your neck out for something that's not going to become law? Yeah. And I mean, I think McConnell, you know, has been doing this for long enough. I think he understands the position that Johnson is in to a degree. I mean, of course, they've only known each other for a few months, but I think he recognizes that Johnson does not have the freedom to negotiate much. Um, and, doesn't have either the confidence or goodwill that he needs in the house to be able to deliver on something like this. Uh, we, we tend to forget almost why McConnell was so into this thing in the first place. And it was because he wanted to get something done on Ukraine, um, which obviously leaves the interesting question of what does McConnell, does he pivot to separating them out? Let's just do Ukraine. I mean, I think it's yeah. a very reasonable thing to say. Like if, if everyone agrees that immigration is dead, What's the argument? It it was a situation. The dynamic before was we cannot bring up anything for Ukraine unless it has the border stuff attached. Now the view is if anything on the border is attached, we're against it. And so unless it's H.R. 2, unless it's H.R. 2, which the perfect bill. Right. So, you know, is it is that now a conservative win if the if, if you just, you know, defeat the Senate immigration thing. I mean, I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily that cute, um, but it may sort of clear the decks of that issue and say, okay, look, um, yeah, we tried that. It's not going to work. We still need to do this. Now that would obviously need to be a, another Senate bipartisan play and try to put pressure on the house. Um, uh, I'm not predicting that's going to happen, but at least opens the door potentially to that to happen. And look, to be clear, Schumer may want to put this on the floor anyway, just to make Republicans 
take a tough vote, even if they knows it's it's going to fail. So a lot of like interesting uh, paths that that still exist for how to handle this. But I think McConnell um, was so clearly invested in this for one reason because he knew that this was potentially the only way to get Ukraine, and now that's not going to happen. Yeah, and that kind of follows. You know, if you follow that conclusion and you know so if if something does come over in maybe even a separate package on ukraine i mean i think that puts johnson into a really dicey spot with his conference um if he tries to move anything like that on his own i think he's going to be facing some real challenges yeah i i don't think we can separate what he's been saying you know trashing the senate uh bipartisan or excuse me the senate immigration deal um the delicate nature of his dancing with the uh, appropriation stuff. Um, All of that is clearly related to the pressure he's feeling uh, in the conference, the honeymoon long being over. And, uh, you know, every day Chip Roy is out there saying something very aggressive. Um, uh, I think that's, I think, well understood and and to be predicted at some point um, that the honeymoon doesn't last very long. I was more... I'm more concerned for Johnson at this point that he may be losing the locker room with the rest of the folks, not ju- not just the hardliners, and not that the rest of the folks, you know, despise him like maybe a, a Freedom Caucus person would, but that they just aren't excited about him or start questioning whether he has the chops for it again, super early. And as I've said a hundred times, like I want to see how he grows into this job. If, you know, assuming he's given the chance to, um, Patrick McHenry had a really interesting interview in Politico. It's, you know, it's 10 or 12 days old at this point. But, um, I think the term he used is that they're, they're sucking wind in the house. Um, really remarkable open, I would say criticism of, the speaker for uh, entertaining so much advice from the people who are never going to vote for things in the first place, um, keeping them directionless, not giving the the conference confidence in what path they are going. Uh, I would suggest that Patrick McHenry is the most respected person in that conference, if not the entire house uh, for number of reasons you know the way he uh presided over the house in a very difficult moment obviously but going back years just a total straight shooter someone who's been around the block knows everything for him to feel so compelled i mean ultimate team player the most ultimate team player and for him to feel compelled to go out in the media and and talk about that was was pretty remarkable so yeah it it didn't feel like he was you know trying to take a cheap shot or paint anybody in a bad light you know it really felt like he was trying to kind of like sound the alarm like you know hey we are we are not being strategic about the decisions we're making you know this is not serving the conference we need to you know do a reset yeah this is not someone who has any interest in i I don't think taking out the speaker or or, or i think he was helping i really do think he's he's trying to to help and i think the speaker would be wise to listen to someone like patrick McHenry, who's been around the block and and seen all of these things so that that's you know i've been worried about this for a little bit and then i saw the McHenry thing um even when uh mccarthy was under fire especially when mccarthy was under fire and even going back into you know i i remember the conference meeting when Boehner announced he was leaving. I mean, you had people just 
upset, fired up, like pissed off. This was, you know, John Boehner was their guy. Um, and there were a lot of members who thought Kevin McCarthy was their guy and it made them furious that uh, people would, would be against him. I just wonder how many people in the conference think Mike Johnson is their guy and that they're going to go to the mat for him and that they are on team Mike Johnson. Um, again, these are not, I'm not worried about this, the folks in the middle, like really turning on him per se, as much as I am just lack of enthusiasm for him when you, you still need those people in your corner as well. So we'll see. Um, maybe he will build up some goodwill just by sort of fighting the Senate immigration bill, but um, certainly some, a, dy- a political dynamic to keep an eye on. Yeah, well, I mean, he's going to build up, you know, some goodwill with the immigration debate with a certain group of the conference, but, you know, that's yeah. certainly not representing, you know, some of the people that that you're um, talking about. I thought his point of, like, taking the win when, you know, Biden's clearly saying he's going to accept some of these immigration policy provisions, you know, I think you know, framing the narrative and being more strategic and long term thinking about how, you know, you know, this could be a win for for House Republicans. I mean, they could actually get some meaningful um, improvement. So anyway, um, I, I I thought it was very interesting as well. But I do want us to talk a little bit about the tax bill um, that has kind of been flying under the radar, but now could be considered on the floor as early as this week, uh, passed out of Ways and Means Committee by like 40 to 3. Uh, overwhelmingly bipartisan, but still has a lot of hurdles, I think, to uh, get across the finish line. Yeah, this is, um, gosh, for something as pretty significant and consequential as this tax bill is really flying under the radar. Um, So much attention on appropriations and so much attention on Ukraine and Israel uh, and immigration that look over there, the (laughs) House Ways and Means Committee has put together an $80 billion package that gives some wins to the left and to the right and um, could actually be a, a real win for for Congress. Um, now, I think maybe the tricky part when it's no longer under the radar, it's you know out, out there for, for everyone to see. Um, uh, tax policy easily gets complicated, but just to kind of um, shorthand it, this is basically um, uh, exp- expansion of the child tax credit paired with some business uh, tax deductions and tax breaks that uh, expired already from the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act. Um, So, you know, this is, I think, a bit of a preview for what's going to happen come 2025. Uh, If folks are not aware, uh, the majority or a large portion, I should say, of the tax policy from the Tax Cut and Jobs Act uh, expires um, for, I was with the speaker when we passed that, for uh, budgeting reasons, um, a lot of the provisions, and to work within reconciliation, I should add, um, a lot of the policies needed to be sunset, and uh, a lot of them, most of the ones that do sunset will be at the end of 2025. Uh, so I think you'll be hearing a lot more about that. Um, but some of these business tax breaks expired earlier and have started to have a real impact. So um, I will just be very interested to see now that this is sort of front and center, um, do you start seeing the squeaky wheels getting squeakier? Do uh, 
Um, you're hearing it a little bit of conservatives saying, why are we doing child tax credit? Um, you're seeing liberal progressive members. Why are we doing tax cuts for businesses? It's just really testing the, uh, that whether, you know, the sort of old middle ground compromise is even a dynamic that exists anymore. What we are, we yeah, but place, I think, I yeah. think Johnson's going to have to make a call on this. Like, you know, I, I, I'm seeing it, uh, being considered for floor, you know, it's, not obviously going to come up under regular order. They'd have to put this on suspensions. So, you know, have to pass with bipartisan support, like 75 Democrats. I mean, don't, I mean, don't well, you think? Yeah, I, mean, I think that's think a regular order. No, I, I think that's a really like important question that needs to be resolved. Right. So we've talked on, on here before about um, the, if the hard right decides it's going to stop anything, it doesn't like by via the rules committee, um, and you have to use the suspension of the rules to bring up anything of substance. Now, I haven't heard them threaten this um, through the rules, um, but we are in a situation where, again, typically the majority carries a rule. Republicans have one or two votes they can lose. So if there is a grumpy Freedom Caucus member who says, I'm going to take down the rule, you are now in a position where he has to put it under suspension, meaning instead of getting 218 votes, he's got to get 290 votes for this, um, which is, I guess, possible. I mean, it passed almost unanimously out of the committee, um, but those are the tax writers who are much more invested in this deal. Um, and the, 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 you know, the, the upside of something flying under the radar is you don't take a lot of uh, slings and arrows in the process. The downside is, is the rest of the members who didn't write it aren't terribly invested in it. Um, so, you know, this is a, this should be a, w a win for everybody, but it may be one of those dynamics where um, giving the other side a win uh, is less acceptable than simply, um, you, and you prefer just to, to stop it. Um, when well, so, I think, uh, yeah. you know, just like anything else, the longer that this hangs out there, the longer Johnson sort of waffles on whether he's going to bring it up, uh, the more time there will be for people to complain about things like salt, about things like Ill illegal immigrant, yeah. child tax credit concerns. He has, been known more to, more of that. he has been known to waffle on a thing or two. So, Very true. Let's take a quick break and we'll be back with Saul Hill Kapoor. Control is a seven letter word. And this podcast is a production of Seven Letter. Seven Letter is a leading strategic communications and bipartisan public affairs agency. Our work is powered by senior practitioners who develop and execute innovative communication solutions to take on complex challenges. Learn more at sevenletter.com. Now back to the program. All right, we are excited now to welcome Sahil Kapoor, NBC News. Sahil uh, is a reporter for NBC covering Capitol Hill. He is certainly one of the most plugged in people that I know on the Hill, um, somebody that I dealt with uh, in my time there, and uh, a person that you know you can always go to for just about any issue because he's always paying attention. Sahil, thank you for, for joining us today. Hey, it's great to join you, Brendan. Um, so Sahil, we talked early on the program about the immigration debate. Um, I mean, I sort of saw Biden's endorsement over the weekend as a, a kiss of death for the bill. I'm sort of wondering if it's now even going to be considered in the Senate. I don't know. We, we kind of, Brendan and I debated if maybe they'll try to break out some of the Ukraine funding. I just, what are you thinking after some of the developments over the weekend as we move into um, 
you know, a legislative session with both the House and the Senate back? Well, firstly, this has always been a very tenuous project. The idea of doing a major immigration deal, you know, we can go back for decades. It's frequently attempted. It never really succeeds. So I start from the premise that this was always a long shot. Whether it's likely to be considered by the Senate, I think is more likely than not if the bill is put on, if the bill text is released, they're hoping to do it this, you know, this week, uh, in the middle of the week. And it has a, a good share of support among Senate Republicans let's say at least 15 to 20, um, they want 25, but let's say it has at least enough to, to get to that 60 vote threshold, given that you lose some Democrats, but but most of them will be there, then yes, I think it'll be considered. I don't think it's likely it'll break the pieces off because if you break off Ukraine, you lose Democrats. If you break off the immigration piece, it's a non-starter for many Republicans because that was the whole basis by which they wanted to you know, put these two things together. So I would say the odds have definitely gone down in the Senate in in large part, I would say a little less because of President Biden, but more because of former President Trump taking, you know, slinging arrows at this at every opportunity he gets. I think that does matter to Senate Republicans, some of them who are up for reelection and some of them who don't want to jam Speaker Johnson, put him in a bad position um, by getting something out of the Senate and putting putting that in his lap. They would prefer to kill it on the front end. So will it be considered? Probably uh, if they put out text, will it pass? I really don't know. But even if it passes the Senate, I think it's extremely likely that it can get through the House. Extremely unlikely. Yeah. Do you have any insider reporting on the sort of uh, the rollout that they've been doing over the last few days? I was just commenting about how sort of odd it is where they're basically endorsing and selling a bill or a deal that nobody has seen. Yeah, it's extremely strange. There, there are a couple of reasons for this. Um, Ordinarily, they would have put out some sort of framework agreement by now. They would have said, we have a deal in principle, which they do. I mean, Chris Murphy, the lead Democratic negotiator, has told me as much. The more you talk to Senator James Lankford, the lead Republican negotiator, he also speaks like there's a deal basically there. Um, There are a couple of reasons they're not putting it out there. The, The first is, on immigration policy more than anything else, legislative text is so, so important because the nuances are everything. I mean, there are court cases on immigration law that have literally been decided on the basis of punctuation, the existence of a comma or the absence of a you know a, a letter somewhere. Um, and the second thing is this is now in the hands of appropriators. And again, on immigration, probably more than any other issue, new laws are, are often not worth the paper they're printed on unless you have the resources to enforce them. So they have to, you know, have the appropriators check to make sure the numbers add up, to make sure the resources are there, for instance, for all these new, you know, detentions that they're going to be uh, authorizing for the expedited removal authorities that they're giving the president and kind of forcing him to to use. Will the executive branch have the money to, to do this? So they're not putting it out there because if they do before this stuff is there, then you mess up the deal. And this is definitely a situation where nothing is agreed to until everything is agreed to. If, for instance, the money comes back costing way more than people think, you could imagine Senate Republicans saying, if, if we're going to spend this much on this, then you're going to have to give us something else and they're going to have to turn another dial elsewhere. So they're just waiting until every last thing is ironed out. And I'm not sure it's a great strategy because the longer this hangs out, the more conservative media is taking you know shots at it, the more they're pointing to rumors of things that were maybe discussed, but are probably not actually in the bill as a way to undermine it. So that situation, the politics of that are, are getting worse, not better. Do you have any 
visibility, I guess, into, I guess, what do you make of all of that hubbub last week about McConnell sort of backing away from it, but then, no, I'm still for it. Um, regardless of the, the sort of reporting at the time, do you get the sense that McConnell is, is he just sort of seeing the writing on the wall that this isn't going to happen or, or how do you, what do you, what are you seeing? For a moment when that happened, I thought this whole thing was about to collapse. I thought that was the end of it once we had confirmed those remarks by McConnell, because he has been the most emphatic supporter uh, on the Republican side of the Ukraine aid, but also of doing these these things together and selling the immigration policy. But in the end, I mean, um, the next day, a bunch of other Republican senators who were in the room, you know, talked to us and said, no, 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 he was misinterpreted. This might be a case of Schrodinger's McConnell. He is whatever you want to be. He's kind of this Rorschach test. If you if you support the deal, you could see him saying, as many Republican senators who support the deal did, just acknowledging the reality that the politics have changed. We have a likely presidential nominee right now, Donald Trump, who's not in support of this. It's an election year. But at no point in that room did McConnell explicitly say, I no longer support this or I'm withdrawing it. So he's giving himself room. He's certainly opening the door to walk away from this if that's where uh, the politics go. And if the numbers aren't there on his side, he'll have no choice but to walk away from it. And you can kind of look back on this. But it's very clear that he's going to give it, give this a shot now. I want to ask you a little bit about the tax bill. Um, you know, obviously, this was a, a Wyden and Smith negotiated legislation. Uh, and we are or deal rather, and we're now sort of seeing some of the pieces kind of falling into place. But something that I want to know if you've got reporting on or if you're hearing anything about Senate Republicans uh, with respect to this this deal and kind of where, you know, sort of some of those fault lines uh, might be cropping up. Not in terms of details. I've had a number of conversations with Senator Mike Crapo, who is the lead Republican on the on the finance committee on this. And uh, Mitch McConnell's office has told me that they're deferring to Mike Crapo. He has said he wants changes to the bill, that he does not support it as is, um, that he would like to see it amended, whether it's in committee or whether it's on the floor. He didn't specifically say. But he also didn't identify. I asked him this like three times in our converse, in our last conversation. He didn't say which parts of the bill he doesn't support. So it's not clear what changes he wants. And it's hard to amend a bill if you know, if you don't say what changes you want. I think the first thing that they're looking for is to see how, you know, whether this comes out of the House, what the vote looks like. If it's, you know, 360 votes or 400 votes, it'll it'll be a, make a very different, you know, statement to the Senate than if it just barely kind of sweeps through. And that's the hope of, of Senator Ron Wyden as well, the finance chairman, um, waiting to see what the House does. He thinks and hopes it'll come out with a big vote and put pressure on the Senate to move quickly because then it'll be the Senate is denying, you know, small business expensing and, and all these things that they want. If the Senate is denying this expanded child tax credit, which this wildly dysfunctional House was able to pass on a big vote. So it, I guess the, the best answer to that question, Annalise, is TBD. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. If the if the House puts up a huge vote, what's the Senate going to do? It's not like they've got anything else going on. Um, uh, but speaking of the House, though, um, look, I, I, we were talking earlier. I think this has benefited significantly from the fact that most people just weren't paying attention to this. Um, what do you think the prospects with conservatives are in the House? Is this going to be a situation where they have to put something on suspension uh, again, which is just remarkable in, in its own right. Um, and, you know, it, how much uh, political capital would Johnson have to spend, which, you know, he's been uh, spending a lot of it lately. Um, how much would he have to spend to even do this in the first place? Or is this kind of a thing where conservatives are, you know, kind of shrugging at? 
First on suspension, yes. I think the expectation of everyone I've talked to on the House side, leadership and otherwise, is that it will be brought on suspension. I mean, they have a two-vote margin right now. You know, George Santos and Kevin McCarthy and Bill Johnson are out. Steve Scalise is temporarily out on medical leave. They can afford almost no defections, and I could probably count to two House Republicans who are not going to vote for the rule. So yes, it'll have to be brought on suspension. So that is, just to stop you, that is basically the default position right now is that they cannot bring up anything of significance under a rule like what is it who's going to vote do you, like you're saying you count to two who are these people who are just flatly going to vote down a rule and just to remind everybody i mean rules used to never fail you if you are a member of the majority party you vote for the rules for the bills that your leadership is bringing up even if you're against them so are we just in a in a completely broken place where you could just assume that anything is going to be voted down on a rule probably i i do think that's more or less where we are unless something has such unanimity that's uncommon these days, even for, you know, symbolic messaging bills, let alone an important tangible one. I mean, I can, I can count to two right now. Chip Roy, because he's complaining about the child tax credit provisions, he had some pretty uh, harsh comments, some of which I can't repeat on the show about, yeah. um, you know, Republicans and, and their attitude toward businesses. Um, so he's one. And the other is Nick Lalota, who is um, very emphatic about the absence of the salt cap expansion. Um, there was you think a he would vote against the rule? Well, he's strongly enough against I mean, the bill. The, that I strongly I against it. I mean, I just, I just want to differentiate everybody. And I'm not d- disputing you that this may be the reality, but there's such a dramatic difference between being strongly against a bill and voting against a rule. I mean, voting against a rule is usually I'm sending a message to the leadership about something. And if you're sending a message on literally everything, but also if you're just taking out your personal policy preferences on the rule, that's a really broken place that, um, I don't know, just gives me a lot of pessimism about anything happening the rest of the year. Yeah, look, I think, Brennan, both things are true. I think what you're describing is, is true. It's rare, it's unusual, but it's still plausible in this case. You know, if it's not Nick Lalota, then, then it's probably going to be Scott Perry. He's also complained in, in along similar lines as what Chip Roy said. Um, I've heard some early grumbles from from the Freedom Caucus side beyond those two members from aides who work, who work for others who are hearing about, you know, these complaints regarding the child tax credit, which, by the way, it's, it's the Trump policy. Let's be clear about that. There's no expansion. There's no empowering of illegal immigrants the way they're talking about. That's not really the case. But, you know, these things are proliferating regardless. So, yeah, I, I, the House is a very broken place right now. I think anything, you know, some Republican members, frontline members who are in swing districts say anything that could possibly be done has to be brought up on suspension uh, in order for it to work, whether it's the tax bill, the immigration bill, um, appropriations. That's another thing, to your point, where Speaker Johnson is putting a lot of capital in. I think how that's one thing that the Speaker has decided that he really wants to do, and he's going to take the, the hits on that. The question is, how many hits does he take? How damaged is he? Does he feel like he still has some capital left to spend, whether it's on tax or whether it's on on immigration? I I suspect on immigration, he's going to feel like he doesn't. Um, But I think the way appropriations pans out will will tell us a lot about where Speaker Johnson sees his standing and where he sees room to maneuver. As someone who's always on Capitol Hill reporting, I'm curious, Brendan and I have talked a lot about how Johnson's leadership team seems to be a little bit absent in some of these 
you know, big negotiations, uh, whether it's funding, whether it's immigration. I mean, we're hearing, you know, almost exclusively from Johnson. Obviously, Scalise has been hospitalized, but you know, typically there are a few folks that you empower in your leadership team to kind of be surrogates, to be helping, uh, you know, talk to the press. I'm curious if that's a perception that Brendan and I have that's not really the case on the Hill, or if that's sort of what you're seeing too, where it's really just Johnson and you know a very you know, small group of people that are responsible for communicating with the press and getting out their, their message. I think you both are absolutely right. You know, we saw the same thing with Speaker McCarthy. His leadership team was not exactly involved in some of these negotiations, certainly not the Biden negotiations on the debt limit. Um, he ended up empowering Garrett Graves, um, who is from the home state of his chief deputy. There were definitely some eyebrows raised there. You know, why is he, why is he tapping Garrett Graves for this? Uh, why that is the case, it's an open question. My theory is that um, it's such a tenuous situation with this narrow majority and any deal and any meaningful legislation that has to get through the Democratic Senate and get signed by President Biden is necessarily going to engender a whole lot of opposition from the right that fellow leadership members don't feel particularly eager to get involved in them and put their own fingerprints on them. Uh, I mean, at least Stefanik voted against the last CR. Think about that. I mean, couldn't even vote for that stopgap bill. So I just think there's not really a desire there. And I think Speaker Johnson is still, frankly, trying to find his legs in terms of, you know, who he can trust to, to move things along, who he can trust to speak for him, who should be in the room with him. He's he's pretty new to this and he hasn't he didn't do much of that in his previous job. Yeah. It's almost a boring point at this point to talk about the conservatives who are fired up against the speaker what's your sense of his standing among the sort of rank and file your your median house republican positive i think to many of them he's exceeded expectations he's doing i mean look if you start from the premise that you know speak former speaker mccarthy did about the best he could do with the democratic senate and president biden around which is definitely the opinion of the median house republican then a lot of them feel the same way about about Mike Johnson. You know, there's not a radical departure from Kevin McCarthy to Mike Johnson other than personal relationships. And Johnson had been around long enough in leadership to create the number of enemies that, that Kevin McCarthy had. That's really the main difference. It's a fresh face doing more or less the same stuff. Um, so, yeah, I don't I, I don't I don't think there is uh, any real negativity. The one difference I would say that I do see, Brendan, is that there are certain people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, for instance, who Kevin McCarthy just had a way with her. You know, she was in in favor of that. She voted for the debt limit deal. She vote, you know, she broke with the Freedom Caucus and ended up getting kicked out of the group because they saw her as too close to Kevin McCarthy. Mike Johnson doesn't really have that relationship with her. And she suddenly, you know, fired up voting against the or opposing the last spending deal, threatening to do a motion to vacate if he puts Ukraine aid in, in any form or fashion on the floor. So there are maybe some new, you know, personal feuds that Johnson is developing, probably yeah. through no fault of his own, that, that Kevin McCarthy didn't have. So it's a, it's a peculiar situation. The one that I've talked about is Jim Jordan. And I don't know if Jim Jordan's an enemy of Mike Johnson's, but him not being an ally of the speaker is a whole different ballgame than what we had under McCarthy. I, I was going to say his name. I was avoiding it because I've, I've, <laughs> I've started to see some some like early signals of Jim Jordan not exactly being on the same page as as Mike Johnson. I don't yeah. know that I'm definitively ready to say he is he's an adversary, certainly not an enemy. But you're right; he's not the kind of ally that Jim Jordan was to Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, that could be a problem. Exactly. Yes, big one. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, Sahil, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we really appreciate your time and all your insights. Um, and thank you everyone for listening. Uh, again, we'll be back every Tuesday that the House is in session with a new episode of Control. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, sir. Great to join you guys. Yeah. Thank you. Control is a production of Seven Letter, a leading strategic communications firm in Washington, D.C. and Boston, with deep experience in bipartisan public affairs, public relations, crisis management, digital strategy, and corporate engagement. Special thanks to our producer, Benji Englander. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please join us next week for another episode, and don't forget to rate and review us. Thank you for listening.